and welcome to Open Source Underdogs. I'm your host, Mike Schwartz, and this is episode 49 with Martin Burr, CEO of Tyke. API management is a hyper-competitive market. There are commercial, open source, and SaaS products from which to choose. This makes Tyke's success even more impressive. I think they've done a lot of basic things right. Keep it simple, provide great support, make sure customers are happy. That's enabled Tyke to grow organically with a relatively small amount of outside investment. This interview is a little on the long side, so let's just get on with it. Here we go. Martin, thank you so much for joining today. Hi, yeah, Mike, thanks for thanks for having me. So in 2016, the API gateway and management market was already pretty well saturated, you could say, with existing well-funded competitors. Why were you crazy enough to jump into this shark tank? Well, the origin story is a bit it's a bit of a Cinderella story, actually. I needed an API gateway for a platform I was running as a side, side business to my regular job. And the existing solutions that were around were either large enterprise monoliths, SaaS platforms, or open source platforms. There was one or two, but they were, again, really, really big. There wasn't anything small and tactical to just use. I mean, you could have, I could have used like Nginx or something as a proxy, but I needed more than that. I had a, just rebuilt my existing services with API first and the platform itself. I didn't want to write my own authentication code. And I thought, well, that's what an API gateway is for. And couldn't find one. And then I thought, well, why the heck not? I'll just build one, which is probably a stupid thing to do, but it turned out okay. And so that's why I ended up with the gateway. It was really small and tactical at first. Worked with my platform, was meant to be really sort of easy to, to inject into other ecosystems without having too much deep integration and then kind of built on it and built on it to get more metrics out of it and understand my, how people were using my service until eventually I realized that the, the side business I was running was awful. <laughs> it was just costing me more money than, than it was um, fun to run. So I closed that down and then open sourced the gateway because I thought, well, why not? It's a pretty decent piece of software. And that's how it ended up in the market. It was almost accidental. And at the start, I mean, we had, it was just me at the start, but I had uh, this dashboard, which was the UI for the system, and also gave you some analytics. And I thought, okay, I'll close source that and I'll sell it. The gateway itself will be open source and I'll sell the, the dashboard. And I sold the initial version of the dashboard for something like 400 pounds for a lifetime license because I wanted to take my wife to, I was living in London at the time, I wanted to take my wife to, Gordon Ramsay in London, which is this super restaurant. And uh, the average head, you know, per, per head is, you know, 400 pounds. That's how much a, a, the meal costs there, which is a stupid amount of money, but it's very good food. And anyway, so I wouldn't say that I started with a great business model or was mad. I just wanted to take my wife to lunch. The open source project started before the company. At what point did you, did you say, well, I think we can really scale this? And, and how, what was your plan for sort of scaling the business? After that initial sort of launch phase and sticking up the project on Hacker News with a small website, it got a lot of traction. Lots of people got interested. Loads and loads of different companies came along and emailed me, amongst which some of them were, uh, you know, I mean, we had Home Depot, Viacom, and a couple of others, some Fortune 500 sort of emailed me saying, oh, hi, yeah, we, we'd love to try your platform out. Can you tell me more? Can we get a call? While I was having those conversations at six o'clock in the morning, 
because I was, you know, in the UK and they were in the US and there I was in my pajamas, trying to convince them to spend some money with me, they would tell me, well, how does your support work? And how are you going to scale this business? And how is this going to work long term? Why should we onboard this? And that was sort of, that was the first spur to say, well, maybe there's a bit of traction in this and maybe I need some help. You know, I'm quite technical, but I'm not run a business successfully and marketed it and sold it properly, you know. So once we got the initial traction and we saw that I saw a lot of interest, I managed to talk an old friend of mine whom I used to work with into joining. And he came on, his name's James. Uh, he came on as um, COO, commercial guy, and sort of helped me shape the whole thing. You know, he shaped the business, he shaped the, the product offering and the marketing, and I shaped the product. And it was a good team because we used to work together at an agency and we were, you know, project managers together. So he was very much on the commercial side of things and the operations side. And I was very much on the technical side of things, but we pitched together a lot. So we kind of knew each other's flow. So when it came to, I think one of the first people we had to pitch to was Eurostar in London, which is, you know, the, the link between Britain and France, the train that goes up through the Channel Tunnel. And then we went there and it was our first sort of real pitch as a company. And that's sort of how it moved from being an open source project that had some interest to being something viable. And I think one of the things that really came about that really sort of told me that we were annoying people or, you know, poking them in the eye with this project was when one of our competitors, and they're not the only ones, actually, three of our competitors have offered to buy us or acquire us. And this happened very, very early on where they came along and said, oh, don't you want to work in Silicon Valley? Don't you want to do this? Don't you want to do that? And that kind of thing tells you quite a lot about a business having viability. So at that point, we thought, you know what, let's do this. Our first real sort of tangible money spending client wasn't even a client. It was a company in the US in Texas that had uh, that wanted to try us out. And James had somehow talked them into doing an onboarding and training session with us so they could try it out and sort of we could do the integration for them. So they paid for the tickets and the per diem for us to go visit Dallas. Spent a week there. I learned how to two-step. You know, it was pretty cool. Ate far too much, you know, Tex-Mex food. And we actually never got the client. They changed teams halfway through, so we never actually got the deal, but we did get this real validation. And it was on that trip where James turned around to me and he said, when I get home, I'm going to quit my job because we both had day jobs at the time. And that was it. He was employee zero. So that's, that's kind of the, the way that panned out. So we kind of stumbled into it and then went into it full on once, the, once we felt we had real, um, real traction. There was something there that showed growth. And we had people that were actually willing to spend money on the product, the product and spend money on us. So yeah, does that, does that answer the question? Yeah, definitely. So today, what would you say is the most important value proposition for your customers? When people come to us for API management, there's multiple outcomes that they come to us for. They might be breaking down a monolith into a microservice architecture. They might be adopting Kubernetes. They might be looking at functions as a service or, you know, or they might be looking at the old school API economy stuff. So, you know, when you said earlier how the market was saturated with solutions, those solutions were built on the premise that users wanted to sell their back office, you know? So they had existing services, they want to monetize them. That was the API economy. And that's sort of all those business premises were on that, where it's actually, I feel like API management now is much, much more than that. It is all about managing internal service usage, external service usage, integration, it goes all over the place in terms of the actual market. You know, sometimes we have customers coming to us for, for integration problems, which aren't API management problems. <laughs> we also get a lot of folks that are just moving vendors. But the main value proposition for us is it's type is small, 
lean, really efficient. I mean, we get benchmarked against Nginx and OpenResty all the time. So, you know, latency matters a lot when it comes to high, high volume APIs. So all of those boxes are ticked. Being an open source product, we're not open core, we're open source. There's a big distinction between those two things. So we spend a lot of time, effort, and money on our engineering team working on the open source project to make sure that it has all the features you need to get the job done. Most open core products will just give you an empty shell and then sell you the bits you need. We don't do that. We don't hide the ball. So that's a, that's a big change for us. And I think one of the largest pieces for us is that when folks come to us, we have a really unique way of engaging with customers. You know, James and I are from the agency world, and that it's slightly different in terms of how you handle your customers to how normal B2B sales works. And I think our customers see that, and it's created this, we have this amazing reputation for customer support. We're always rated top of the, you know, best of the best. And Forrester and Gartner, every single time, you know, our, our customers are extremely satisfied when dealing with us as a company. We're extremely good handling our customers and handling that relationship. And that's a great value proposition because it means once they, once they meet us, they go, oh, this is a bit different. And then they look at the product and they go, oh, this product actually says what it does what it says on the tin. And that's, that's, a, that's a big differentiator for us. We were also, and this is sort of a slightly different aspect, but when we entered this market, one of the main things we did was say, when somebody wants to install critical infrastructure, like an API gateway, they do not want to worry about security concerns, that software phoning home, worrying about external access to it or external access to those logs. So right from the bat, our software does not phone home. Our licensing system doesn't check on whether your license is valid. It's all cryptographically done. And that puts us at a bit of a risk. It puts us in, uh, at risk to make sure that we're selling something and we're not being conned out of revenue. But at the same time, it gives our customers that satisfaction that they could actually create their infrastructure behind a firewall, lock it in a cave somewhere, and it'll still keep ticking over. And that's really important, especially when you're going into heavy regulated markets like healthcare, banking, insurance, and things like that. Because these, these, these organizations, they need to be able to to silo out their solutions and make sure that they have full control. So we kind of revived this on-premise business model where everybody's moving to SaaS. We said, no, no, go on-prem because a lot of organizations need this, especially the, B2, the big B2Bs. You know, for the smaller stuff, we see a lot of companies coming to us for our SaaS, and we were one of the first companies to offer a hybrid SaaS solution. So you could go into our cloud, you could run all your traffic via our cloud, or... You could run a gateway locally and localize your traffic, but have all of the management infrastructure, which is the more expensive part of the infrastructure, sitting in our cloud. And that was, that was a bit of a big deal at the time. And we took that capability and we made that into a product. And that became our enterprise product. We called it, rather imaginatively, multi-data center bridge. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. But that piece of software is our sort of big, big ticket item. And it's closed source. But all it really does is it enables the user to manage their, their, their API ecosystem and their gateway fleets across multiple data centers, firewalls, regions, without having to worry about latency, uptime, or connectivity. They can fail independently, uh, and they scale independently. And that's all built into the base platform. So it's quite powerful. What you get out of the box is super powerful. And then if you add all the value add that we have that's closed source on top of it, it's worth the money. I think when it comes to open source, a lot of people try to monetize open source through support 
And that's really hard to scale. You know, you're, when you scale support, you're scaling the margin you have in your time. So your customer base gets bigger and you'll you look at your, own, let's say your customer base comes in, they join in the, 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 the organization, they try to integrate your number of support calls and the usage of that SLA peaks over, let's say, maybe six weeks. So they're getting their money's worth on what they paid for support. But then once everything's working and they've got the hang of the product, that tails off again. And that's great because obviously it frees you up to do more support work, but it also means that the value they're getting out of it goes down. And then it becomes more of an insurance policy, an expensive insurance policy, which means it's one of the first things that gets cut, especially when your software works really well. You know, as you grow, you then hire more support engineers to help you make sure you can manage your SLA. But as that support tails off or your business stops growing so quickly, those margins you're making on someone's time just aren't sustainable and they scale real badly. Whereas selling a product, so selling a physical thing, you know, the old school, put it in a box and sell it to the end user. That has a huge margin because you sell the thing and you're dealing with unit economics. And that's a much, much easier business to run. So when we came to the open source conclusion, we said, okay, so we're going to hamstring ourselves by selling, by giving away a free product that's incredibly powerful. And then we're going to have all these value add products that sit on top of it that are geared towards the enterprise, but those will be closed source. And that is what we will sell. But it's worked for us because the thing is the value-add stuff that large organizations want to pay for is the kind of stuff that gives them those insurance policies. Most engineers don't want user interfaces. They don't want human intervention. But their managers do. That VP of marketing wants to be able to go in and look at a chart. And they need that fallback control where they can manually intervene without having to worry about a DevOps pipeline or something like that. And then the... So there's that piece. Obviously, analytics is a very big piece. And then last but not least is simple things that all businesses want, single sign-on, role-based access control, multi-tenancy. Those are the kind of things that large enterprises just salivate over. And if you can take that, bundle that into your enterprise value proposition, that's the bit you sell. And you'll see, actually, if you look at, if you look at most open source solutions these days, you'll see that there's an open source product, and then all of those businessy things are the bits they sell for an extortionate amount of money. Actually, I wanted to roll back a little bit to something that you said. You mentioned that you're open source, you're not open core. Would you say that there's a core product or let's say that's open source and then there are additional components which are commercially licensed? How does it work? The bit that does all the heavy lifting is the gateway. It's a proxy. Traffic goes in, gets managed, traffic goes out the back end. And that's where all the hard work happens. So not only does it move the traffic, but also it applies things like rate limits, quotas, it gathers analytics. It might transform the request in some way. It might run some plug-in middleware, all kinds of transformational or you know, validation elements that you need to do to your traffic. That's the bit that, that you know, that's where your authentication lives uh, and your authorization layer live. That component is sort of the key bit. That's what you want. That's the bit that you want to put in front of your into your DMZ, in front of your traffic to you know, secure your services. That part is completely open source. And all of the components you need, all the features you need to manage your traffic is part of that component. So if I went out and I said, okay, I am large business A and I want to spend no money on my traffic management, my, you know, my API gateway and my API management, I could do all of that with our gateway. The only difference is there's no UI. You have to do it all programmatically with our API and with files and all that kind of good 
standard, you know, Unixy way. So that's fully functional. We don't hobble our product at all. But then we have the, the components that go on top of that that are the value adds. So there's a separate service called our type dashboard. That's the management UI. It's also a management API. So the dashboard is a single page web app. It consumes the dashboard API. The dashboard API is much larger and granular. It's multi-tenanted. You can have users, you have RBAC, and all of that good stuff. It also has a developer portal, which you can expose to let your developers, you know, self-serve access to various services in the organization or even externally. And so that part, that whole application is closed source and that takes a license key. And that license key is essentially a cryptographically signed object. We use a private key to sign it. The public key is embedded in the binary. So all we need to do is validate the signature. And if the signature is valid, we can trust the claims inside it. And that then says what you're allowed to do with the dashboard. And it has an expiry, expiry set. So we know that, you know, let's say it's a one-year license, then the software will lock you out after one year because that's expired. Good thing about that is it doesn't need to call home. We don't need to actually validate the license because all that stuff happens in the software in a quite a safe way. It's hard to break. So unless we lose our private key, obviously. So that's one component. And then the second component that I talked about, this multi-data center bridge, also has a license with a separate key because it's an add-on. So you, you can kind of build out your ecosystem with Tyke. You can start with the gateway, which is open source. And you go, okay, this is great. I like this, but I actually want a UI and I want all this cool RBAC functionality. So you buy the dashboard and you just tell the gateway to be managed by the dashboard. So now you extend it out your installation. And then you go, okay, now actually I need that. I need gateways in six different locations or six different networks. Okay, I can't do that with one dashboard because of latency problems, database problems, and things like that. So I'll buy the multi-data center bridge. That's an add-on. You point the, 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 the bridge at your dashboard, and it then and you point your gateways at the, at, the, at the bridge, and it then takes care of handling your fleet. So we basically license those components, and within the dashboard, there, there are feature flags. So you know, for role-based access control, multi-tenancy, things like that, uh, single sign-on, those are feature flags we can switch on and off in the license. So we can, you know, start with a base license and then build up on the pricing tiers from there. And we leave that up to <laughs> sort of software decision. That usually goes to the commercial team. They'll sort of know what levers they, they see coming out of, you know, the interactions with potential customers and saying, okay, well, these are the things people want. Let's figure out how we can price those. So there's always this evolution <laughs> in how we price our, our software. But that's essentially how we manage it. It basically means that somebody could go along and say, okay, if you go for the they get up to our dashboard installation. They run that for a year and they're like, okay, we can't afford this anymore. They don't actually have to take Tyke out. They just simply have to take the configurations out, put them into the open source system and take away the dashboard and they can keep running. That's the important bit. Whereas if an with an open core system, the core thing doing all the work is hobbled because if you no longer own the components that are doing the work, like your rate limiting or managing OpenID Connect or something like that, then the actual, the whole thing is broken. So you can't continue. Yeah, to shift. So of the three products that you mentioned, there's the the self-managed, the enterprise, and the SaaS. From a revenue perspective, which of those is the most important today? At the moment, on-prem, the self-managed is, is the one with the best margin because we don't take on any of the costs of running the software. SaaS is a tricky business. You have to run it. You have to put a margin on top, and you scale accordingly. So there's quite a lot of sunk costs in just getting everything running. 
we're about to launch a brand new version of our SaaS, which basically takes all of the stuff you get with the uh, on-prem version, all the good stuff like our plugin capability and things like that, and makes it into a multi-region SaaS. So you can say, oh, I want to have my dashboards in. But that's mainly around data sovereignty because we operate in Europe and we operate in Australia and Singapore. You find these data sovereignty laws get more and more and more strict. And that's why on-premise really popular. But the first thing that gets cut during a recession is your DevOps team. So the last thing you really want to do is manage people that manage software. So they all go for SaaS. But then if your SaaS offering isn't up to scratch, you lose them at that point. So we're building out our SaaS to basically be just as competitive as our on-prem solution and just as you know capable in terms of where you locate it, where you run it, uh, and doing it all via a, a, a managed controller to make that work. So I should run that in. But essentially, to answer the question, yeah, the, the, the holy ohm system is the one with the biggest margin and the one we currently see the most interest in. So on your website, I didn't see any particular vertical marketing focus. Are the, are the sales opportunities primarily inbound, like i.e. people find the open source and then they reach out to Tyke? It's a bit of a mix. Mostly inbound, yes. People do reach out to us. We don't necessarily have to go banging down doors, which is good. The way people find us are a, a few. Yeah, we, there, there's Google looking for the open source software, trying that out. But actually, interestingly, a lot of stuff that drives us is whenever there is a comparison, we're always in the mix these days with our, with our largest competitors. And Gartner and Forrester run reports on full lifecycle API management. And we were lucky enough six months into launch of the company to be featured in both. Not, I think we were an honorary mention in the first Forrester because we didn't quite have the revenue they needed for open source. But um, we did manage to get in there. So we've been on the radar for a while. So nowadays it's more about when people look for, to, you know, they're looking to do a, a proof of concept or some kind of uh, RFP, they, they will hit us up just by default. And then they, they reach out to us and say, tell us more about your software. The other sort of big inbound market is, um, especially in Asia, actually, is um, partner marketing. So we have a whole bunch of integration partners out there. Since our business is mainly the use case for an API management solution is ultimately an integration problem. So we have all these systems integrators that will look to us to provide a solution and they might meet, they might be more uh, vertical focused. So you'll have a, an SI that's healthcare or, you know, government or things like that. And they'll, they'll specialize in that sector for us. And they'll build on top of our platform. Did you actively recruit and identify these system integration partners or did they find you? We hired a really, really good sales guy in Singapore and he knew how that market worked out there. So he courted them Initially, we did have, it was a bit of a mix of inbound and, and courtship. And usually what happens is it's a bit more opportunistic. The problem with legacy providers at the moment is they, they already have all these, these partners, uh, partner relationships set up, but they're also extremely expensive. So when it comes down to trying to cut costs or trying to streamline things like government spending, looking at the, the value those, those solutions add becomes problematic for most, especially if they're closed source. And the open source model always feels cheaper. So that tends to be a big driver as well. I'm not saying that open source is cheaper, but open source is perceived as less, as less costly 
because it doesn't come with the overhead of training and the sales cycle that comes with it. Because you know, you go and try and get a trial of a large enterprise piece of software, you have to go through three layers of account managers, salespeople, and technical representatives before you can get your hands on the software. And that's um, that accessibility can be a real problem. Buying off the back of a data sheet. I'm gathering that enterprise customers are most important from a revenue standpoint. But have you found a way to serve smaller organizations, i.e. through the SaaS? And is serving those smaller organizations actually like material to the business? Is it worth the effort? It's definitely worth the effort. I mean, we, we started off as a community business. Still are. The people that pay our bills are the large enterprise customers. Those are the ones we, we you know really try and court, but those are six-month, 12-month deals. You know, selling into the enterprise takes forever, not just from just getting in the door, but also just um, getting contract signed and making sure that the invoicing is correct and going through all the procurement hoops. So that's all well and good. That's the bit that sustains you. But at the end, it's the smaller engineer, the side project, the hacker that drives interest that pushes the platform a bit, that actually will probably contribute back, especially in the open source place uh, world. And so we, we do. I mean, as I said, our SaaS version is relatively less costly than the on-prem version. And we do obviously offer discounts for charities or small businesses and things like that. So we do have ways in to use the software without paying us a fortune. And we do sometimes, you know, say here, you know, have, have the dashboard capability for free. But most importantly, as I said, is if you're working with a smaller customer, is we can enable them through our community support or through discounting to make sure that they get what they need. We don't actively go after those customers. They say, you know, actually almost every single time you engage in a, in a sale, especially in our market, it's, it's an integration sale. So you're, there's a lot of exp- expertise required. You know, they'll have their own identity provider. They'll have their own databases they want to use. They'll have different service types that they want to use. They'll have specific integration problems that they need to solve and they need your help with. You know, that's the old fight of how good is your documentation versus how much help do you want to give on a personal level. And time, in this case, that person's time is really expensive. So we have to be very careful where we, where we spend that time. But we do make sure that all of our engineers, for example, are on our community forum and are actively engaged in helping the community make sure that they can do what they need to do and, and work with the, with the software. We're not exclusively focused on the enterprise. We just can't spend a huge amount of time on customers that don't sustain us. We do ultimately have bills to pay. And developers got to eat. We have something like 74 people on staff now in 22 different countries. And, well, it's lovely to be able to offer an open source piece of software to the community and take the position that we will never hide the ball and you know it'll be a fully functioning piece of software forever. The bits that are the value add we do need to charge for and we do need to make sure we can we can keep the doors open. One of the things I think that really puts a lot of people off of starting an open source project is there's a lot of entitlement that comes with folks that use open source software that they don't quite understand you know, the person building it is doing this out of love or, you know, because they enjoy it. It's rare that an open source project becomes a business. And once it becomes a business, your your viewpoint has to change. So it's a sort of double-edged sword. 
of how much do you put up with users that feel like you owe them something versus you know, trying to run a business profitably. So hybrid cloud API proxies are hard to price. Some, some companies are tracing per transaction, but transaction value varies widely based on the line of business. Per server and CPU models are tough because in the cloud native world with auto scaling, compute can be a moving target. I heard MuleSoft has a pricing model based on per container hour gig of RAM. So I'm wondering, have you figured out what are the gates you're using to figure out how do you price for this this type of service in the enterprise space? Hybrid's tough because you're not actually running the traffic either. So if you're telling a user, oh no, you run all the infrastructure and we'll charge you for the traffic is um, <laughs> it's problematic at best. So what we do is we, for us, when somebody comes along and says, okay, we want to use the hybrid, they are basically using, you have to remember that all, everybody that uses our software, no matter the large enterprise to the smallest user, are all using the same open source gateway. So if you use our hybrid offering, you're actually using our open source gateway in the configuration so it works with our hybrid cloud. So the, th- the nice thing is we can basically say, look, here's the container. It's public. Do what you want with it. Just make sure you configure it this way. And the way we price is pretty straightforward. You basically pay us for uh, your account. It's a monthly subscription. And that subscription comes with data retention limits. So because that's the most expensive part. We don't run any of the traffic. The traffic is going through the hybrid gateway. So we are just collecting and storing and processing analytics. And that is expensive. So we say, okay, so per gig, per, we actually do it by number of days. We, record, we store it for, you know, you get seven days or 30 days or 100 days, plus the additional features in the dashboard because all the value add stuff, so single sign on, role based access control, and all that stuff, that lives in the cloud bit. Whereas the hybrid gateway itself is fully featured, so they just simply need to configure it. So actually, the way we offer it is just a subscription model where we don't charge per, by scale. If they want to run 100 gateways, that's absolutely fine. I mean, admittedly, it's a bit of a surprise to us when people do it, but we have had it before where we had one Malaysian customer who was, they were a huge e-commerce provider out there, so a big sort of e-shop, mobile, mobile shop, and they were running you know, millions of requests a day through our hybrid infrastructure. And I mean, they had like, you know, they must have had 100 or 150 gateways spun up. In their, in their architecture. I think they were using Mesosphere. Yeah, it just sort of, it stood up. As long as we didn't have to store it, it was okay. <laughs> so uh, for our hybrid, instead, it's just, it, we, we've actually parceled it as part of our overall SaaS solution. So if you pay our, our cloud price, we throw hybrid in just as part of it because it's, a, it's meant to be a flexible proposition. It shouldn't be either or. I see. What about on the, on the self-managed piece? How do you price that? Well, it, it scales according to how many gateways the dashboard has to manage. So you could, for example, have 10 gateways running open source. Fine, no problem. But as soon as you introduce the dashboard, we limit that down to how many things can actually connect to it. So customers come to us and say, okay, well, I have this kind of this, this much traffic. My, 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 you know, I have this kind of size of server. These are my requirements for a high availability and failover. And we can then put a package together for them saying, okay, well, you need two gateways or you need five gateways or you need a, you know, 10 gateways to manage that. And then the license is built accordingly. So they then install the license and it allows 10 gateways to connect. If you would try to add an 11th one, it rejects the connection and that gateway doesn't boot, basically. 
So it sounded like you were saying that you were actually had good community interactions on the support forums. Are you planning to foster growth of the open source community and ecosystem? And how are you, how are you planning to do that? Well, yeah, we just hired um, a full-blown community manager. Uh, I think it came from us to us from Mozilla um, to help us build out our open source offering. So it's one of those things that gets neglected um, as you get bigger. Kind of go, oh, you know, we have we're making money. Woo! Focus on that, and then you sort of forget about all these all these free users that are sitting there giving you all this free feedback on on the, what your product needs. So we've um, we do we do a couple of things. One, we have as I said, an open source community forum, and all of our engineers are on there. All of our consulting engineers, so these are kind of like post sales technical architects, are on there. Uh, plus, our support managers are on there to make sure that there is coverage. So you, you do actually get access to the staff. It's not just the community helping itself. So we do actively do that. It's obviously a bit slower than you know our, our SLA approach, but nonetheless, it is there. And then as a sort of community manager is focusing quite heavily on what we can do better in GitHub, managing tickets, managing visibility of the roadmap, managing pull requests, and also in general figuring out how we can shift from being an open source project that we mainly drive to becoming more of a platform that people can build on top of. So we're currently investigating ways of doing that to make that really work because, as I said, you know, systems integrators... Um, and partners, they will have, you know, large companies like Accenture or Tata Consulting or Capgemini, you know, they do have industry vertical professionals. And those guys will go in there with the product that, they, that they've got internally around, you know, HIPAA compliance or FHIR compliance or open banking or whatever. And they'll want to build products around that. So the more customizable your solution is to handle an industry, handle a vertical, the better because they can build products out of your platform and both people win. You know, you win because you sell a license, they win because they've now cornered a vertical with this particular solution that happens to be based on yours. So that's sort of where I'd like to see it go. And we've seen it here and there. You know, we, we see it. It's hard to track them because, as I said, we don't call home, so we don't actually know where any of these open source gateways are running. But um, when they do pop up, you do find some really interesting stuff. We had a partner in well, we had a customer in Thailand that said, okay, the, the guys that bought it, the, that brought it into the company, eventually left, and they started their own thing, and they just recently shared with us, like, oh, look, we've done all this, all this extra work, and now it integrates with this, and we have all these plugins. And they, they're literally running a business off of that. And I love to see that. It's amazing. They're doing this all with their open source work. And we've seen a couple of integrators, partners, individual open source contributors just taking the product a little bit further. And that's wonderful to see. So I actually like to see more of that and have more visibility of it. We, as we said, we don't at the moment because we don't really force it to call home. So we can't really just sort of poke a user and say, what are you doing? How would you feel if somebody took the open source or some company took the open source and built a sort of platform around it and there was some overlap maybe with some of the features that you were offering? Would you see that as a positive or a negative? For the company, it depends if they're taking business away from us. It's a positive most of the time because they're doing something with it that we can't do. If they're doing full blown overlap, like they're taking our dashboard and copying it and adding services on top and then saying, okay, this is a cheaper version of the version you can get from the vendor, I would be a little bit irritated because they'd be reverse engineering some APIs we've got. But 
It is the price you pay for being an open source market, being an open source product. It is part of the part of the risk. You know, you see a lot of people moving into the business source license, and we considered that for a while to think, okay, well, how do we stop people, you know, trying to edge into our market? And at the moment, it's not so not so serious. I mean, if you were a database like you know Mongo or Redis, it's a much bigger problem because your your footprint is much bigger in terms of usage. And it's this whole thing. It's like it's a it's, I called it sort of it's API theft or driver theft. So, and you can see it in some some businesses as well that, that are API based, where all of a sudden they'll go, "Oh no, we you know we support the this you know the Uber API uh, for our car service, which means you can just point at a different endpoint and your 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 SDKs will continue to work, or all your integrations will continue to work, or you know you can just drop in a new driver. You can use the same Redis driver to connect to Elasticash as you can to Redis Labs. That's just mean. It's uh, really taking advantage of, of interfaces. And I think it's part of the open source problem. It's part of, actually, it's, real, it's a real issue if you become very successful in open source. You know, it, uh, you become a kind of standard. I mean, we don't have that yet. Um, I would love that, but we don't have it yet. But, you know, it's like MySQL or Redis is a great example. They have this wire protocol. If somebody wants to launch a competing product, they just need to implement this wire protocol because it's open source. And all of a sudden they can say, oh no, we're, we're driver compatible. Cockroach Labs, for example, is driver compatible with Postgres. It's interface theft. It's, it's, um, it's just a way of acquiring users through somebody else's hard work, which is, it's a risk. It's a real, real risk. And that's why things like the business source license exist. But I think the only time you need to look at something like that is when you do actually have people building out large scale high visibility platforms that are competing with yours, most of the time <clears throat> there should be enough space in the market for you both to coexist. So it's a bit tricky. There is no answer, I think. I'm not sure that answers the question. But. So last question. Any advice for entrepreneurs who are launching a business around an open source product? The first thing is try and figure out what are the bits that are valuable in your product because that's the thing you need to protect and monetize. A great example, actually, is the Caddy project. Really, really good web server with some really strange monetization options, and they've changed their tune several times from you know, enabling access to a build server to removing headers to doing you know, all kinds of stuff with their proprietary version. And it's because the entire product was open source. What you need to kind of figure out, if you look at like Kibana or even Nginx, you kind of want to say, well, if you're going to try and monetize an open source project, you can't monetize the actual open source piece because that's always going to be free and open and you don't really want to be hobbling your own open source software. So you have two choices. You have the choice of either forking and creating a second branch that has all the value-add stuff that you want to sell or going open core where you then sell the plugins and things like that. Or maybe go like us where you say, we have an open source offering. We're going to continue providing that. It's fully functional. But, you know, if you're a big business, you're going to want all this extra stuff. That's the stuff that's, instead of baking it into the core, we've created different separate services for it, and we charge for those. That makes it more sustainable. The other thing is, I guess, if you're starting an open source business, is really figure out who you want to sell to. Because mass market is hard. If you're looking at investment, mass market is great. So if you've got something that's got really high penetration, so a good example might be like Postman or Visual Studio Code, right? That gets a lot of adoption. It gets a lot of low-level adoption, which means you have access to millions of users. 
And that's really valuable because you can eventually monetize that and mine it for you know, the 10, 20% that'll actually pay you some money. When you're going mass market, you have to go for as much penetration as possible. If you're going B2B and you want to go into the enterprise layer and you want to start charging those big bucks, you need to really start thinking about your sales process. I think most startups, when they get into the B2B industry, even if it's open source or not, selling to a business is hard. It takes forever. And there's if you don't have the experience of working in that environment and dealing with the, the red tape, the contracts, the process, and the flow, you're going to have a really hard time to break it. So that's, that's the second thing. Getting into, you know, it's probably easier for an open source product, product to go for mass appeal rather than B2B, but B2B is where all the money is. With a mass appeal product, if you're going to say, okay, I've got a new code editor or a driver or a really cool data stitching API or whatever, if you get a lot of users for that, that's great, but you'll need to monetize them down the line. And one, that means you have to alienate your community. Two, it means that actually your value will be in that network, which means you're going to be trying to sell on that network. And open source businesses that are relying on a network need funding. So eventually you're going to have to get funding in order to monetize the network, in order to get to a point where you're profitable. At Type, we were really, really lucky because we managed to build the business really organically from the start. You know, we started with zero employees, then one, then two, then three, then seven. And that was off of the back of a little bit of angel money and actual real deals. You know, we were making cash and we were in the black. And then we grew slowly. We only took funding last year, but that was so that we could, you know, go aggressively into the American market and open an office there because that costs a fortune. You know, you can't build that organically. So you kind of need to really figure out where you want to go with your project if you're going with open source. That's a lot of weird advice, I guess, but... That's great. Martin, thank you so much for spending all the time with us today and congratulations and best of luck. Thanks, Mike. And thanks to the whole Tyke team for collaborating on this podcast. Editing by Inez Satenji, transcription by Maria Anchikovic, cool graphics from Kamal Bhattacharji, music from Broke for Free, Chris Zubrisky, and Lee Rosevier. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. The handle is at FOSS Podcast. That's F-O-S-S Podcast. You can also follow me personally on LinkedIn. I always post a link to the episodes, and you can share it from there, too. Next episode, we have Catherine Erickson from Datastax, one of the leaders in the Cassandra ecosystem. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, thanks for listening.